This is episode 245 of That Shakespeare Life. Our show is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. Get access to bonus content and insider looks at the making of our show when you become a patron today. Sign up at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. Hi, I'm Elisa Tersini, a researcher of early modern food. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. Pony catchers are rabbit hunters. The victims are the rabbits. So that was my first question was, why are these pony catchers people, you know, pictures of rabbits picking locks or, you know, wearing swords and shields? Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. There were several pamphlets published during Shakespeare's lifetime featuring a menacing giant rabbit. Sometimes this rabbit would be wielding a sword and looking very scary. It would be easy to think that this character the pamphlet calls a coney catcher was invented for marketing purposes, except that we see the phrase coney catcher come up several times throughout Shakespeare's plays, including Merry Wives of Windsor, Taming of the Shrew, and even Henry VI Part Three. We can see from the passing references that Shakespeare writes about the coney catcher, that coney is a word for rabbit, and it follows then that a catcher of conies is one who catches rabbits. But it begs the question of why is the rabbit being used in early modern England as a fierce, sword-wielding villain? There are so many cultural questions to unpack with this symbol, and that's why today our guest and author of the new book about the coney catcher and other Shakespearean criminals and malcontents, Ari Friedlander, is here to take us through what we should understand when we discover rabbits running rampant in Shakespeare's plays. Ari Friedlander is the author of Rogue Sexuality, The Erotics of Social Status in Early Modern England, and co-editor of a special issue of JMCS, Journal for Early Modern Cultural Studies, entitled Desiring History and Historicizing Desire, based on a recent conference on the same theme that he co-organized at the Henry E. Huntington Library. He has taught graduate and undergraduate courses on Shakespearean Renaissance literature and culture, as well as theories and histories of gender, sexuality, class, and disability. Find out more about Ari and links to his work in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Ari. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Cassidy. It's nice to be here. If someone is called a coney catcher, what is the meaning of that phrase? And does it have anything to do with your recent book's focus on Renaissance sexuality? Coney catcher meant rabbit catcher. Coney meaning rabbit. And coney catcher is a sort of metaphor that comes from this literature about criminals and con artists in the Renaissance that purported to be a kind of expose of the criminal underworld and the sort of seedy side of Elizabethan and Jacobean England. Coney was a, was a kind of symbol for easily caught victim of crime, what we might today call a mark, a con artist mark. And so Coney Catcher was therefore the con artist. 
So I talk about these figures, these texts, and these texts that narrate these stories of the criminal underworld in my book on sexuality, because I couldn't help but notice as I was doing my research on these figures that almost every time they're described in this literature, there's some sort of way that they're sexualized. And they're either described as choosing to live a life of crime out of a kind of orientation towards pleasure instead of labor or, or work, or they're described just point blank as wanting to have sort of greater access to women um, in the case of male coney catchers, or, you know, some sort of inherent sensuality or wickedness in the case of female coney catchers, which are often sort of conflated with prostitutes, uh, sex workers in the early modern period. You know, as I read more and more and thought about it more, I also realized that the term coney was a pun, a uh, wordplay on the word cunny, slang for female genitalia. And so sort of a cony catcher was pronounced more like cunny catcher in the period. So it really, it had that kind of oral, A-U-R-A-L resonance for people in Shakespeare's time. And so a cony catcher is also kind of like, um you might call it like the equivalent of a modern pickup artist, right? Like somebody who catches women, right? Not just somebody who catches victims or fools. In Ari's work on the Coney Catcher, he features several pamphlets with these elaborate images of rabbits, which surprised me. Ari, why are the rabbits carrying swords and looking ready for war? I mean, that them being so fearsome was more surprising than them being rabbits, but they're, <laughs> they're, they're standing on their hind legs and they're, they're just ready to attack somebody. I mean, why, if a Coney Catcher is all of these things you just explained to us, and including being like a petty thief, why is the image of a Coney Catcher look so much like a war figure? Well, that's a great question, Cassidy. And it's one that I found myself asking my when I was doing this research. In fact, I would even take it back a little further. I think it's interesting that you said it's not so surprising that they're rabbits, because to me, that was very surprising. Because of course, coney catchers are rabbit hunters, the victims are the rabbits. So that was my first question was, why are these Coney catchers, people, you know, pictures of rabbits picking locks or, you know, wearing swords and shields, like you said, sort of offering violence or another. There's even one of like a, a male coney catcher speaking to a female coney catcher and sort of debating about which sort of criminal is the most dangerous and harmful. But they're both rabbits. <laughs> you know, it was something that these pamphlets are not unknown, you know, to scholars of Shakespeare's time. They're fairly, you know, they're written by fairly prominent people in the period, including Robert Greene and Thomas Decker and Thomas Middleton and they and others. And they've been written about before. But as far as I could tell, nobody had ever noticed that the images do the opposite of, you know, collapse or reverse the metaphor of the coney catcher and the coney. So to answer your, your question about why the rabbits are violent, I think it's because the rabbits are in fact representing these dangerous coney catching kind of figures in the period. But I think the, the sort of larger question is why are they rabbits in the first place? What I kept coming back to this, the sort of sexual freight of the, of the rabbit, right? The rabbit is this, even back then it was an animal that was associated with reproductive capacity, right? Breeding like rabbits, not just reproductive capacity, but a kind of dangerous reproductive capacity. They would tell, you know, people writing about natural histories and, you know, kind of uh, biologists and historians, they would say, they would tell stories like, 
there were rabbits who bred so much underground that they just destroyed a whole city in Spain because they just the whole city collapsed into these underground warrens that the rabbits population uh, bred underneath it. So this idea of, of a kind of dangerous sexuality, dangerous in particular in its reproductivity, was something that I think the metaphor that the rabbit offered for that kind of sexuality kind of paralleled very nicely the metaphor or the the way that these early modern pamphlets were sexualizing the danger, the social danger supposedly posed by criminals and con artists and prostitutes in the period. And that was, I think, I argue in my in my book, Rogue Sexuality, that it was it was kind of hard to for the culture to distinguish sometimes between the poor, uh, the impoverished people and the criminal. They were often assuming that anybody who was poor was poor because they wanted not to work, right? And that's part of the idea that feeds into this definition of coney catchers as choosing a life of pleasure rather than labor. One of the famous figures that you mentioned that wrote some of these pamphlets included Robert Greene, who in 1591 wrote a pamphlet about coney catchers. This would be the same Robert Greene who wrote about Shakespeare being an upstart crow. All right. How did Robert Greene describe the coney catcher? And is there any connection between Greene's accusations against Shakespeare and his writing about coney catchers? Well, that's a great question. I think that Green was the author of most of the pamphlets that have those images, the the rabbit coney images that we've been discussing, although there were other authors that wrote about the criminal underground that didn't necessarily market their wares with that image. But Green, because he wrote a lot of these pamphlets, he described these figures in various ways. Sometimes he describes them as base cousiners, you know, cousin meaning to trick. So lower class tricksters. Uh, sometimes he calls them uh, beastly kind of animalistic things. He says they're unworthy the name of men. So there's a kind of dehumanizing element to sometimes to, to these things that kind of, again, dovetail with that representation of them as rabbits rather than rabbit catchers and, or rabbit hunters. Often he and other writers will call them caterpillars of the commonwealth, <laughs> meaning, um, you know, like a caterpillar eats leaves in the garden, right? The uh, kind of parasitical insect or pest that is weakening uh, the garden of the nation of England, right? There are other ways that the descriptions that Green employs for these figures are, like I said before, more alluring and more appealing. So he will describe them as, you know, he'll criticize them as parasites, not laboring, but he'll also sort of talk about the fruits of that parasitism, <laughs> namely fine clothes and uh, nice lodgings that they don't have to labor for in the same way that um, your normal orderly Londoner labored at a trade in order to to get their living. And then, there, of course, there's the whole aspect of just the wittiness and the cleverness of these figures when they go about their schemes, ways they trick, you know, their marks into gaining their count into giving them their confidence and things like that, that make them almost like these um, merry jests, you know, these kind of trickster figures that are captivating and th they have a kind of charisma. The ultimate villain, really, the one that you you love to hate and never see coming. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so I and, and that you'd rather one that you'd rather emulate than, you know, punish. 
as an actor, Shakespeare himself would have been in the population that was on this strange liminal space, this shared space between criminal and impoverished person until he started uh, doing a little better himself socially. You know, actors uh, were one step above vagabonds, right? Uh, They were included in statutes against vagrancy. Um, That's why uh, actors had to be associated with uh, the Lord, like in Shakespeare's case, the Lord Chamberlain's men or the King's men, right? They had to be servants to a nobleman so they can travel around without being accused of homelessness. <laughs> so, you know, on the one hand, it makes a lot of sense for Green to be talking about Shakespeare as an upstart crow, to be suggesting that he's some sort of faker and thief. Now, you mentioned, obviously, that the Coney Catcher is this sort of fashionable, disreputable person who commits acts of deception against people. And I wonder if you could share with us the kind of scam that a Coney catcher would have pulled off. And I'm wondering, are there any examples in Shakespeare's plays where we see a Coney catcher operating? Sure. I think probably the most famous examples from The Winter's Tale uh, with a the figure of Autolycus, who is a kind of vagrant and uh, peddler in the pastoral countryside of Bohemia. We see Autolycus in that play pretend to be uh, somebody who's sort of injured in need of help on the road. And as he is doing that, he, the clown figure, who's the adopted brother of Perdita in the play, he goes to Autolycus's aid and Autolycus picks his pocket. Right. So this idea of Autolycus becomes a coney catcher there because he's pretending to be somebody in need of aid and he's sort of not dressed as a, as a criminal highwayman. He's sort of seems like he's, you know, he's, he's not displaying any of his ill gotten wealth. He sort of seems like this person who's in need of desperate need of help. And he takes advantage of the clown's good Samaritan kind of impulses. So that's probably the most famous example in the Shakespeare play. But I think that a lot of the, to answer the second part of your question first, but to go back to the first part, you know, Coney catchers do like a million kinds of things. So they'll pretend to be people who need help. They'll pretend to, they'll just pretend to be beggars and, you know, they'll dress themselves up as having, you know, an injury or some sort of disease that requires that, that disables them from working. But then, you know, they'll, they'll happily take um, your donations and then spend, and then, you know, take off their, their fake bandages and go spend their money on, on drink and, and partying at the pub later. At least these are the stories that are told uh, about them. And then there are other kinds of examples. Like I think I mentioned to you that one book where you have like a, a male and a female Coney catcher arguing about which one is most injurious to the realm. And that argument goes back and forth with, you know, the male person say, oh, we can do this. And this is really bad. And the female one saying, well, we do this. And this is really bad. But the place it ends up with is with the female Coney catcher, the sex worker being um, victorious, because she says that we can partake in this scheme called crossbiting, which is kind of sexual extortion scheme that was purported to be very profitable in these pamphlets where and and even this scheme can take different forms, but it was sort of a version of what we would call today like rolling the john. I don't know if you ever heard that term. You know, you might be so a term that's used to, to describe like when you steal from when a prostitute steals from when a sex worker or a prostitute steals from a john a client. 
So you could just pick their pocket or, you know, tie them up and take their clothes. But then there were more sort of elaborate versions where you're, you would have a male partner come in and pretend to be the husband of the prostitute and say, you know, how could you sleep with my wife? I demand satisfaction or I'm going to, you know, blackmail you by telling your wife that you're sleeping with my wife or, you know, uh, if you, unless you give me X amount of money right now. So when I say, you know, they can be pretty elaborate, you know, they, involved the sort of almost play acting by these characters, um, a little skit in order to extort money from unsuspecting clients. So that was a scheme that sort of gets pretty elaborate. And, and then there are also things like cheating at dice and all sorts of things. Some things that are even people still do today, right? I mean, there well, that's are what I was thinking. All of these sound like things that happen in and I did not recognize the phrase rolling the John, but then I've <laughs> think of I can think of television shows that I've watched where this right. this happens, you know, in right. in the plot of the story or whatever. And right. those are those are all it seems like, you know, deceiving people is is an ancient art. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I, I think that it's good that you use that term art. I mean, I, I think that that was a lot of how this these materials tried to sell and describe coney catching as an art that was being taught amongst the fraternity, as they sometimes called it, of the vagabonds, but also therefore an art that you could learn as a reader and either a, to protect yourself against, right? You could recognize the telltale signs. You could discern between like just a regular beggar who deserved aid and a fake one who was trying to cheat you, right? Or on the other hand, you could learn the tricks of the trade yourself and practice them as necessary. And I think that it was that latter aspect, I think that really captivated the imaginations of people like of authors like Shakespeare and Ben Jonson and others who were really interested in thinking about how the kind of skills, the art of deception could be applied in sort of more elevated social settings, or at least that's one of the things I argue in my book is that the, the sort of career of the figure of the Coney catcher, you know, goes far beyond the sort of Elizabethan underground into the sort of courts and the parlors of London's um, and, and England's early modern England's um, elite social settings. Well, I know that I would like to learn more about the Coney catcher and I think you would be a great person to ask, what are the books and resources we should explore in addition to your own book about learning more about this figure and how they operated and just the history that's that's there to uncover? I think that the place to start is at the source. And there's a really wonderful anthology of early modern Coney Catching Tales collected by an editor and scholar named Arthur Kinney. It's a wonderful anthology with a, a glossary of uh, sort of slang criminal terms um, in the back. And it's fairly accessible for the general reader, I would think, or as much as these things could be. I think that if you want to look at more recent scholarship on these figures. There's a wonderful edited volume of scholarly essays called Rogues in Early Modern Culture, published by the University of Michigan Press for a few years back, edited by Steve Mentz and Craig Dion. That has just a whole host of really interesting and, and different approaches to this topic. And then, of course, there's my latest book or my first book, actually, Rogue Sexuality in Early Modern English Literature, Desire, Status, Biopolitics. That is, as far as I know, the first book to really mine this connection between the social and the sexual disorder of the 
Coney Catcher and Rogue figure in Shakespeare's time and to track the influence that the sort of sociosexual rogue had on early modern literature, culture, politics, uh, and even science, uh, if you count the science of demography, that is uh, the study of populations. And of course, in that book, you'll find a lot of footnotes and bibliography to lots of other sources in addition to the two I mentioned earlier. Those are excellent resources for sure. And we will link to these in the show notes for today's episode where you can find the resources Ari recommends as well as a direct link to his book, which you should definitely check out to learn more about the Coney Catcher. Now, Ari, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Well, I think that I spend so much of my time reading Shakespeare and criticism and things like that, that when it's just a matter of pleasure reading for me, I tend to go for pulpy mysteries and crime novels and things like that. You know, so over the past few years, I've been obsessed with the crime writer uh, Lee Child and his Jack Reacher series. I've read all the books in the series multiple times. Um, so I might pick you know, one of those novels, or uh, if we're allowed the complete works of other authors than Shakespeare, uh, I might choose uh, the complete works of Lee Child or P.D. James, you know, on the mystery side of things. It's just a, you know, stupendous mystery writer and uh, any of her uh, later, more complicated psychological crime mysteries uh, would be wonderful to have with me on a deserted island. They are the kinds of things you can read. Both of these authors, I think, are the kinds of writers whose works you can read again and again. Well, you would certainly be keeping life interesting on your deserted island with those collections. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? So I'm working on a new book that I'm tentatively calling Inventing Impotence uh, in Early Modern England. And it it's about the relationship between disability and sexuality in this period. And, you know, it grows out of my interest in crime and sexuality from the first book. And it, it takes this term impotence as its kind of center because impotent was a term that was a class term. You call you, you referred to the poor often in the period as the impotence poor. And that meant people who were unable to labor. But of course, over the course of the early modern period, especially as we get towards the mid-17th century, the term shifts and it begins to mean sexual dysfunction, and often male sexual dysfunction in particular. And so I'm interested in thinking about what what is the history behind that kind of shift? So I want to excavate for us, like what it meant, what the term meant before that shift, and then what is the story of, of how it makes that shift? Well, I am certain that this will be filled with excellent and in-depth research that dives into archival details we might not otherwise have observed. And I'm excited about the Shakespeare connections because, of course, we love that here at this show. We wish you the absolute best with that publication. And thank you so much for being here to share with us about your book, Rogue Sexuality and the History of the Coney Catcher. Thank you so much for being our guest today. This was fun talking with you. Oh, it was a lot of fun for me, too. Thank you for getting in touch, Cassidy. 
If you liked the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a rating and a review on the podcast platform you're listening from today. To get more in-depth history on the Coney Catcher, as well as to see some of the woodcuts we talked about from today's episode, along with all of the resources Ari recommends that you use to learn more about this fascinating topic from Shakespeare's lifetime, you want to check out the show notes for today's episode. We've packed all of these resources and some special bonuses all into the show notes at CassidyCash.com slash episode 245. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP245. If you'd like to have an insider's look at the making of our show and be a part of keeping that Shakespeare life available completely commercial-free, then consider becoming our patron. Patrons get access to bonus content, including our exclusive documentary short films on the life of William Shakespeare, along with our award-winning animated shorts where you can explore Shakespeare's plays in just three minutes. In addition to the extra history episodes, patrons also get sneak peeks at upcoming guests and the opportunity to submit your questions that you'd like to have asked during an interview. Find out more and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.